Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hey, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. I have a very, very exciting guest today, uh, Dennis Noble. Um, we're going to be talking about um, genetics and the microbiome and all kinds of interesting topics. And Dennis has so many credentials. If I try to describe them, I'm going to bungle it. So I'm going to ask Dennis to do a intro of himself and a brief background. So Dennis, how you doing? And thank you for coming. Well, delighted uh, to come and join your podcast. Um, incidentally, when it comes to all of those credentials, one of my critics describes my name as being followed by a veritable alphabet soup. <laughs> he <laughs> must have seen the CBE, the FRS, the FRCP, and the AE, and goodness knows, I, I know what he means. Um, we, we seem to go in for these in the United Kingdom in a way that I don't think happens in quite the same way in the United States. But what it does indicate, I think, is that, um, well, I'm quite a, an old hand at science and discussing science with the public. Um, you don't get all those alphabets after your name um, for nothing. And I think the reason that's happened with me is that first, I was the first person to describe mathematically how your heart's pacemaker works. Hmm. In other words, I accounted for the rhythm of the heart in mathematical terms using a computer model, and that was based very, very firmly on experimental data from real heart cells. But later, I became very, very doubtful indeed about some of the fundamental principles of biology and in particular about what we think about evolutionary biology. So that's how I've come into this area of huge interest to many people, economists, politicians, mm. lawyers, um, all crowd around to find out what it is that biologists think about the nature of the body, the nature of the mind, the nature of evolution. So I suspect that's why I'm on your program. Yeah, the goal of this program is to bring listeners, especially early adopters, information about future technologies that are here, that oh. are just becoming nascent and that they're fascinated in. So in the area of the body, it's regenerative medicine. It's in other areas, it's 3D printing, it's artificial intelligence, etc. But that's that's why I wanted to have you and the topics that we're going to talk about affect all of us, life itself, you, the, meaning yes. of, you know, the meaning of life itself. So that's why I wanted to have you, and I'm really glad you're here. Well, that's absolutely right. And I think that what we're witnessing at the moment is quite a fundamental change in the way in which biology is viewed, and in particular, how we came to be here. Um, let me be specific about that. Most people, I think, unless they are 
believers in creationism think about the way we arose, how we came to be here, as something that has been solved, that evolutionary biologists fully understand how it is that we humans exist and how many other animals exist. It's very simple, they would say. That's simply a matter of some random mutations in our genes and then selection by the environment to determine who survives and who doesn't. Mm. And that's no doubt a mechanism that happens. The problem is that many of us think that it doesn't begin to explain many of the features of biology that have been discovered, actually not only just recently, but also there's been quite a resistance to accepting that that standard story, which was arrived at about 70 years ago, um, is in any way incomplete uh, and in any sense wrong. And yet I think it's certainly demonstrated to be incomplete. Let me just give one example that might get us going. Sure. Um, the standard story would say that nothing can pass down our genome line other than the genome itself. In other words, what we pass on to subsequent generations is simply our DNA. Mm. Now, first of all, that has never been true, and it's certainly um, not regarded as true now. It's never been true because if you look at what is in the egg before it's fertilized, what you see in the sperm before it fertilizes the egg is much, much more than just the genome. Because the whole structure of cells, which is inherited as well as the genome. So it's always been the case, ever since we un began to understand that we arise through the fertilization of an egg uh, by a sperm, that much more than the genetic material must be contributing to who we are and what we are. And indeed, that's exactly what you find. If you, for example, look at the genetic determinants of how tall you are, mm -hmm. you'll find that that is much less predictive than simply knowing how tall your ancestors were, your parents, your grandparents. That will tell you much more than just sequencing the genome. Now, I'm not opposed to sequencing genomes. I think that's produced some extremely valuable information for us. What I'm saying is, it's not enough. There's much more to be known about what contributes to what makes you and me than simply our genomes. Very interesting. What are some of the other elements you think, in addition to just the genome, that contribute to who we are? You, you went into it a little bit, but can you expand upon it a bit? Yes, very happy to do so. Um, let, let's take the following um, piece of evidence. During the World Second World War, um, there was a phenomenon of great importance that happened, which is that the people in Holland suffered what is called a starvation winter. Mm. So the food was literally being taken over into Germany. Germany by that time was in some difficulty, was fighting and needed much more uh, food to be brought into it. So they took 
a lot of the harvests in Holland. Huh. Now, that led to, as I said, the famous starvation winter. We see the effects of that winter two to three generations later. Really? In other words, the children, the grandchildren, and now the great-grandchildren of those people showed the characteristics in terms of propensity to health and disease that are determined by that rather terrible experience. Now, that's um, an example in humans. Um, in animals, you can clearly show that what we call epigenetic marking, that is, changes in the way in which the genome is read by various chemical marks that get put on it. This is like saying, look, the, um, the word you've just typed in should be in boldface rather than in ordinary print. Imagine that your genome is there as the standard alphabet, but sometimes something gets highlighted to be boldface or italic. Right. Now, that's what a, a genetic mark does, or what is called an epigenetic mark. Now, it's quite clear that those marks can be transmitted down through the germline and again be transmitted on to subsequent generations. So, some of the ideas that were ruled out very clearly uh, by the standard theory of evolution, which is that there could not be the inheritance of acquired characteristics, that is, characteristics acquired by the individual and then passed on to uh, subsequent generations, it's quite clear that that can happen. Now, how often it happens, how big an effect it is, all of those are open questions, but it can no longer be an open question whether it happens. So that's one of the areas of work that is now very active. There are whole books on what are called transgenerational epigenetics. Sorry, that's a big mouthful for your listeners, but it no simply means the inheritance of those marks, as it were, indicating this bit of the gene code should be bold-faced, this should be, it should be italic, and expressed, therefore, to a different degree. Those are the kinds of things that I have in mind when I say that evolutionary biology is undergoing some very fundamental changes. Well, I'll give you, the listeners, and you one example. I read an article recently about rats, and yes. they looked at mother rats that licked their babies, their pups, they call them. Right. And they found that yes. ones that groom their babies more than others produce rats that are more well-adjusted, Less nervous. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so That's it's amazing. Of Michael Meany's work in Canada. Um, it, it's fundamental work because that is marking the genome. And very interestingly, the stroking behavior marks the genome in hippocampal nerve cells. Now, the hippocampus is part of our brain that contributes to our affective behavior, to our emotional behavior. And stroking is, of course, emotional behavior towards young or indeed towards adults for that matter. Um, how do we uh, court each other? Um, the fact is that that stroking behavior in Michael Meany's lab uh, demonstrated very clearly that it marks the genome precisely the way that predisposes the animals when they grow up to stroke their young in turn. 
And it's a lovely piece of work because it's got the molecular biology that worked out which bits of gene machinery were being marked, where in the body that was happening, what kind of role that plays in the body, in this case, uh, contributing to affective or emotional behavior. And the only thing that remains, I think, is working out why it is the stroking behavior manages to communicate in that way to the genome a long-distance way in the hippocampus. But we're, we're getting used to those kinds of questions. They're the kinds of questions that still remain to be fully worked out. But what is certain is that that work by Michael Meany demonstrates very clearly how the stroking behavior matters. And, of course, that has huge implications for the way in which we bring up our, our young, because humans also <laughs> nurture their young, and so they should. And nurtured babies will almost certainly uh, be more healthy, protected against disease, better than those uh, that are not. Well, it's one thing to say, okay, it makes sense. If I love my baby, they'll grow up to be a more well-adjusted, happy baby. But it's amazing to contemplate that I'm changing the gene expression of my baby by, by doing that. That's amazing. Yes, I don't think anyone's yet demonstrated that mean is effect occurs in humans, but I personally don't doubt that it does. Um, I find it, I would find it extraordinary if a mechanism that exists in rats, mice, and I would guess many other rodents, um, and of course you see licking behavior towards the early young in dogs and cats and so on, I would find it extremely surprising if this didn't also happen in humans. Uh, but it's going to take us a lot of further work to find out whether that marking behavior actually does work in the way in which it does in Michael Meany's experiment. Yeah. Um, can you just let listeners know what happened with the starvation winter? Literally, what is different about the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the people in Holland? Yes. The main effect are the propensity to obesity because, of course, uh, part of our appetite for fattening foods, sugar and the fats themselves, um, must have arisen in the course of evolution when probably we were all, most of the time, starving, <laughs> as most wild animals do. You, you know, you have to fight for your uh, next meal if you are a carnivore. Right. And so it's not too surprising that um, the children and grandchildren and so on of those unfortunate uh, parents in the Dutch starvation winter should experience some of the genome marking, because I think that's how it must have been transmitted down through the germline. Either that or another genetic mechanism, which is very interesting, and I'd like to add it into our discussion at this stage. It's not only gene, gene marking, but to be technical for a moment by what are called methylations of the genome itself or of the proteins that form the chromosome. It's also transmission of very small RNAs. Now, RNAs are produced as a consequence of reading DNA. In fact, you don't produce a protein unless you first produce an RNA. It's called a messenger RNA. Now, there are what are called micro-RNAs that don't necessarily produce anything like a protein, 
but which do have an effect in controlling the expressions of a genome. In other words, they are regulatory, and those also are passed down through the germline. line. I will give one very neat example of that, and this comes from the work of Rehavi, that's a difficult name, R-E-C-H-A-V-I, um, published in the journal, a very famous journal called Cell. What Rehavi and his colleagues did was to look at some very tiny worms. They're called planarians. They're so microscopic that you, you need a good microscope to see them properly. Okay. But they're a favorite for genetic experiments because they reproduce so rapidly. You can have about a 100 generations in one year. Now, what they did was to first infect the worms with a virus. There aren't many viruses that will infect planarian worms. But what happened when they infected the worms with this particular virus was that the worms that had the right DNA to do it produced an RNA that silences the virus. Hmm. Very neat. So it actually switches the virus off, stops it reproducing. Now, you've got to have the DNA to produce that RNA. So then they had a very interesting idea. Suppose we breed from those animals, and then we cross them with planarians that don't have that DNA. What happens? Of course, you'll get some progeny that have the DNA can make the RNA, and some progeny that uh, don't have the DNA. By usual Mendelian genetics, you'll end up with a mixture. What you find is that all of them, regardless of whether they have the DNA or not, are resistant to the virus. How do they do it? The RNA goes down through the sperm line, and it then gets amplified by the organism with a little enzyme called, naturally enough, RNA polymerase, which just amplifies the number of RNAs of that type in the body of the organism. And so down through the germline, you pass a few RNAs, but they get amplified up in each generation. They followed that for 100 generations, a whole year oh. of Aryans breeding. It persisted the whole time. So there are several mechanisms by which this can happen. Marking the genome is one. Um, passing RNAs down through the germline is another. Now, I'll tell you something else very surprising. Many people may not know this, but Charles Darwin, the origin of our modern theory of evolution, of course he thought of the idea of natural selection, but he also accepted the idea that there could be inheritance of acquired characteristics. Moreover, he went to the subsequent book after the origin of species called The Domestication of Animals and Plants. He went further and he invented an idea as to how it could happen. Because the big question is, how can it possibly be that the germline, just in our germ cells, can be affected by what happens in the body as a whole? Right. And so he thought, well, there must be some tiny particles, he called them gemules, that could pass down through the blood to the germline. Well, RNAs do exactly that. Wow. Well, we, we've actually discovered now, through finding that RNAs can go down through the germline, as the Harvey's experiments show so beautifully, we've actually found Darwin's gemules. Wow. Now, I mention that because many people think that what we sometimes call neo-Darwinism, which is the modern theory of evolution, 
is just a an updating of Darwinism. Darwin was very much more cautious hmm. than the modern theory would say. He was aware that there were other mechanisms. He even invented a theory, and I think we've now found the evidence that his theory was correct. Okay. Anything more to say about that? You said uh, you talked about the germicles. What other aspects was Darwin open to that are not discussed or are just yes. coming about today? I'll give you another one that might amuse your audience particularly. He called it sexual selection. Now, you and I would have called it, of course, choosing a mate. Mm. Actually, that's what he meant. But he also had a very interesting remark about that. What he said in his book on sexual selection was that means that individuals choose to determine the direction of the evolution of their species because they choose to mate with particular individuals rather than others. Mm. And they are, therefore, part of the selection process. He got something very interesting in that um, idea, which is that organisms themselves, humans included, choose. They are agents in what they choose to do. Let me give you another example of how that happens. It's not just sexual selection in humans and animals, where it is obvious that who we choose as a mate will determine what kind of genes we pass down to our germline and to our um, descendants. Mm. It's also possible to show this in, now we'll move to animals, uh, in packs of wolves and dogs. They know, they can detect the difference between cooperative members of the group and disruptive members of the group, what you might call cheaters, there for the ride without contributing to the group, which means that they select for cooperativity. Hmm. And that is that is anathema to the standard theory. <laughs> the whole idea of the selfish gene, to quote the title of uh, Dawkins' popular book, is that, as he puts it very succinctly, we are born selfish. Our genes created us body and mind. Um, what these studies are showing, and there's a very recent a study that uh, takes that particular phenomenon on further in both dogs and in monkeys is that organisms have the ability to partially determine their own evolutionary strategy. Hmm. And that means that evolution is not entirely blind. If you and I, as humans, and our pet dogs, and monkeys, and other animals too, can choose the direction in which they wish to develop, that is a huge change in the way in which we view evolutionary biology. I go far, as far as to say in one of my books, there's a little book called Dance to the Tune of Life, which came out just recently. I go far as to say that purpose is back in biology, that we can identify purposive behavior in organisms in addition to ourselves, and that that must affect the evolutionary process. It must be part of what, as Darwin clearly understood with sexual selection, it must be part of what enables those organisms to develop groups that are cooperative and in such a way that they actually defend themselves much better than if they were not in cooperative groups. You can see that in the plains of Africa today. Hmm. Watch birds of 
zebra on the plains of Africa when lions are about. Uh, watch other herds of animals that have preys like lions and tigers. There's a kind of collective behavior that it's best to put it, I think, by saying it looks, out, looks after the interest of the group. Of course, in the end, the lion or tiger will almost certainly pick off one or other of them, uh, but they all contribute to the strategy that makes it difficult for the predator to succeed. You see it in bird behavior, too, um, the way in which birds will cry out when there's a predator around. I mean, in part, they're warning other birds, of course, that that is the case, that we've noticed a predator. Um, but they're also, of course, making it quite difficult, so difficult for the predators that some, sometimes the predator just goes away. Mm. <laughs> it's not a, not a good bet. I won't go any further. So this has many, many implications. Um, I, I think we should regard the evolutionary process, therefore, as not entirely blind. To quote uh, another famous book by Richard Dawkins, incidentally, I admire his writing, I just disagree with his theory. Right. Um, another famous book is, of course, The Blind Watchmaker, hmm. in which he would say that, you know, that there clearly was uh, no organism and no uh, creator that produced what we now see as a consequence of the evolutionary process. It was entirely blind chance followed by natural selection. Hmm. Now, I've got a very interesting comment on that. Um, who do we know that are watchmakers? There are other humans. Right. So the only watchmakers we actually know, of course, he was talking about a possible metaphysical watchmaker, I think, hmm. um, and uh, aiming to prove that that couldn't possibly be the case. But the only the only watchmakers we actually know are humans. And if we accept that humans evolved from other animals, then the idea that we can partly determine the course of our evolutionary history and that other animals must be able to do so too because we evolved from them uh, makes absolute sense. You spoke about herd behavior and how... Groups of animals would select for co cooperativity. So it's yes. it's interesting. Individuals can alter the course. They can select their mate. Groups of organisms can choose how their species will evolve. It's it's amazing that you see it at all these levels. And it, what happens if we go the other direction, down to the uh, cell level, or if we look at you know maybe what we you could say more primitive organ organisms, bacteria. And viruses, well, you see that behavior yes, there. Yes, I think bacteria certainly do it. Let me give an example from bacteria, which I think um, people might appreciate. Um, this was described at a congress in, in Barcelona here in Europe just about a, a year and a half ago. Um, you can observe a film of bacteria, that means a colony of bacteria, on the surface of a fluid as it grows. And something very interesting happens as you observe the film, which of course will be absolutely millions of bacteria because they're beyond the resolution of the human eye. You've got to use a microscope to see them. Mm -hmm. So what you can see is the film. Now, that film, um, by a film here, I mean, of course, <laughs> film in the sense that you put a film of plastic over something, not in the sense of a, of a movie, right. uh, just to make that clear. So you've got that film growing on the surface. Now, of course, as the 
film grows, the bacteria multiply, they're using nutrients, primarily sugar and other nutrients in the fluid. Now, something very interesting was found by the experimenters who reported this at a congress in Barcelona, which is this. If you watch the edge of the film and you record it automatically with a light beam, you can see that it increases in a rhythmic way. But sometimes the population increases rapidly, so you get an expansion of the film, and then it stops for a while. Hmm. And then it starts again. So you see this cyclic effect in the growth of the bacteria. Now what is going on is what they demonstrated. The bacteria in the centre of the film are the ones that are going to run out of nutrients first. The ones right at the edge of the film will be getting nutrients from the edge very easily. They're signalling by a mechanism that they demonstrated. We don't need to go perhaps into the detail of that. But they're signalling to the other members of the colony right out towards the edge that it's a good idea to stop growing for a moment. Hmm. Let us catch up because we're hungry. Now, anthropomorphizing the way the bacteria are acting. But in practice, that's what they're doing. They're signaling to their colleagues, don't grow yet because we need more food. Hmm. And then, of course, the whole colony benefits from that because it expands in a way that doesn't leave the core, the center, deprived of food. The core does not die. So even bacteria can show this kind of cooperative behavior. Interesting. Uh, Since we're in the bacteria world, what about um, antibiotics and medicine? You know, there's scares that uh, bacteria are becoming resistant. Yes, I was hoping you'd get onto that. I'm going to be at a congress in August in uh, Brazil, the International World Congress of Physiological Sciences, where one of the big speakers, Eddie Jonas, will be the Nobel Prize winner for her work on uh, bacteria. And in particular, she'll be talking about the challenge for healthcare through the growing bacterial resistance. Hmm. So I think we can begin to understand how they do it. What we find is this, that Bacteria have the ability to mutate parts of their genomes faster than others. Mm. Actually, our immune system cells in our bodies can do the same. So this is not a property that is unique to bacteria, um, but it resembles what happens in our bodies with the immune system cells. When they're challenged by a new body that's invading, a new virus or whatever it might be, Right. What they do is to tell a very restricted part of their genome to mutate rapidly. That's random. But what then happens is they find out which of the molecules formed as a consequence of that random spinning, as it were, of the genome in that part, Mm -hmm. which of them will fit the lock, as it were, of the invading organism. It's like a lock and key phenomenon. And, of course, what then the organism does is to tell those cells in our bodies to grow and the others to die. And that's how, in the end, we manage to cope with a foreign invader. We do that extremely rapidly. So within days, we've got the uh, right um, antibodies to uh, deal with the antigens. Now we come to what bacteria do. They do exactly the same. When they are 
treated with antibiotics, and particularly when they're treated heavily by antibiotics so that mm -hmm. the environmental pressure is very strong, they also can mutate parts of their genome faster than others. The process, therefore, leads precisely to the resistance that we're now scared of. And I think we've got, we've got to do, of course, first of all, find new antibiotics, and I hope the pharmaceutical industry will rise to that challenge and put the resources into uh, discovering new antibiotics, as we used to do. Right. Um, that's one solution. But the other is to work out how exactly the bacteria are doing it. Because if we find that it is indeed um, an increased mutation process, we could try to find a different way of approaching the problem, which is stop that process. Now, I don't know how we do that. I'm not uh, a good enough... Um, but if I, if I did know how to do that, I'd be earning billions, I right. can tell you. Right. Um, uh, somebody listening to our podcast might well think, well, here's an opportunity um, for a new industry. And I think it is. Hmm. If people could work out exactly how the process of an invasion by, in this case, antibiotics, triggers that process of what we call it hypermutation. Uh, it's meaning, of course, greatly accelerated mutation. If we could stop that happening with a very different kind of um, antibiotic to the kind we've got at the moment, we would probably give ourselves another 100 years of safety from bacteria. But wow. there's an idea to throw out to your listeners. Yeah. Is there a new company here? Could there be a new way of generating antibiotics? Could you do a... Um could you create a vaccine in a different way? Take um, immune cells from a human, put them in a dish, and then put a, a virus in with them, have them respond and adapt, and then take the ones that survive and inject them back into your body and create uh, resistance that way. Would that work? Well, yes, to some extent, that's what we do, of course, with some of the vaccines today. We, that, that's partly what they do. They create a minor version of the illness as it were, to create resistance to the really dangerous uh, virus or whatever it might be. So, in a sense, we already do that as, the, as one of the ways in which vaccines created. And in a sense, therefore, what I'm suggesting about the possible future of developing further antibiotics is, is a version of that, isn't it? It's hmm. saying, let's work out how the cells actually manage to do it by very rapid mechanisms that are way beyond the standard evolutionary theory of gradual accumulation of random mutations and, and see whether, through understanding that, we can uh, develop new technologies. And what you just referred to in relation to new ways of developing vaccines, I'm sure could be uh, exploited in much the same way. Mm. Um, I mean, in a sense, by taking some of those uh, cells from our immune system out of the body, cultivating them and creating, as it were, uh, a new form of resistance is a way of doing it. Now, I suppose the reason why we don't need to do that generally in ourselves, in humans, is that our immune system is actually very good at doing this for us. <laughs> Normally, if our immune system is fine and working well, it will find, most of the time, good solutions to the 
invader and how to, to stop it. Where the application of that kind of new technology might come in would be, well, what about those people whose immune systems have been very badly damaged, through stress, through traumatic experiences and so on, which, as we well know, leads to and can lead to very seriously compromised ability to resist infection. Mm. And so, yes, you might be right that a, a technique that could develop new vaccines in that kind of way, uh, in a more intelligent way, might be the way forward. It would be, in effect, boosting the immune system of those who have got a, a very weakened immune system. When, you know, what about using bacteria to evolve resistance to a pathogen and then I don't know if this would work, but putting that bacteria into us or co-opting our existing bacteria. If we can't fight against right. the pathogen, what about using the bacteria that are already in our bodies and having them go to war yeah. and building them up? Oh, yes, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of bacteria in our bodies, uh, but actually they're carefully kept in our uh, intestinal tract <laughs> um, and, of course, on the surface of the skin. Generally speaking, we don't allow the bacteria to permeate through into the real core of us. That is, to go through the gut wall, that is generally forbidden, but it can happen. Huh. Um, just as a matter of fact, it happened to me once about seven years ago. I actually had a, an invasion of a bacterium that got, managed to burrow through my gut, and I got terrible bleeding. Right. Um, it, generally speaking, you don't allow bacteria to get into the real inside of you. Most of them are on the surface of our skin or in the gut. In fact, the great majority uh, are in our intestinal tract. But what you might do is to use the bacteria to develop the chemicals needed, um, and then you can, perhaps using that, um, form the basis of a new treatment. Um, I'm just thinking on my feet here, so I'm not totally sure whether that would work. Okay. Uh, I personally wouldn't put bacteria into my bloodstream. <laughs> I might put chemical products of a bacterium that had found a successful solution into my bloodstream if it was shown to be effective. Well, in talking about bacteria, it seems like most people think they're just dumb, tiny creatures that, you know, Sure, they can make you sick and they can, you know, digest things, but it sounds like they're extremely advanced. You know, let's talk about antibiotic yeah. resistance. Yeah. Why is it, why are, is science so scared now that um, they're not going to be able to come up with uh, new antibiotics? Why is it such a challenge? What can we do? Well, I think the difficulty comes down to money. Um, now, I'm not a good economist, but I will speculate nevertheless. Um, the real difficulty for the pharmaceutical industry is that you don't normally, except in agriculture and in farming, you don't normally um, use antibiotics in vast quantities. You might have a week on antibiotics. If you're in a really difficult situation in the hospital, you might have a month on them. Um, the real, of course, uh, source of funds um, for the industry in relation to antibiotics is their use in 
uh, chicken farming, in beef farming, and so on, where antibiotics are used routinely in the food to dampen down disease in the animal populations, and one can well understand why that is done. And of course, that is extremely valuable from the point of view of food production, extremely valuable to the industries that produce those antibiotics. But it is another reason, of course, why the bacteria are developing resistance, because where did the bacteria in China that have been shown develop resistance to nearly all of our antibiotics? Um, it arose, of course, from um, farming. Now, what I'm leading up to, I think, is this. Yes, the bacteria are, I would use the word, pretty clever. And okay. um, let me put it this way. Um, if you ask the question how I generate really good strength when I do from my muscles, the answer to that, and the answer is your case and in any listener's case, if they are needing to do a real heavy form of exercise, is that they're relying on the products of bacteria. Because the energy-producing mechanism in our cells, they're called mitochondria. They are a big mouthful, but what it means is the little particles inside our cells that generate the energy in a very efficient way. Those have been demonstrated to have been a billion or two billion years ago, a particular kind of bacterium was invaded or was ingested, whichever way you look at it, um, the cells that eventually, through billions of years of evolution, produce you and me. So we are a population of bacteria historically in our own cells. And so coming back to the point I was going to make, if you ask, you know, where where does the real intelligence in our bodies lie? I don't mean here conscious intelligence. I'm talking about cleverness in the sense that you and I would recognize it in an invention. Okay. It's cleverness to the nature to found a way of fusing two organisms together, because that's what it did in a process called symbiogenesis, bringing two organisms together to form a vastly better organism that could produce energy very much more efficiently. And that is what led to the biggest change in evolutionary history. It's the change that produced the kinds of cells that could eventually evolve into producing organisms like you and me. Hmm. Now, they still are there. And they've still got DNA in them, incidentally. Although most of the DNA in those bacterial invaders billions of years ago have been transferred into the nucleus of our cells. There are a few um, DNA sequences, though, that still lie in the mitochondria. So even at the fundamental level of how your muscles and my muscles can work efficiently, we depend on bacteria. That's amazing. have become absorbed into ourselves, accommodated into ourselves, as it were, an enormous amount of time ago, but which taught the cells that gave rise to us how to make energy. That, that's pretty big, in my view. That's amazing, yeah. Is, yeah. is there a way that we can co-opt that knowledge and cooperation from bacteria to you know, probably I, I don't think we'll ever win the arms race against pathogens, but to give us a fairer uh, ability to compete in it. Yes, I think we can delay doomsday by various mechanisms, and 
as you're hinting there, um, working out how they do it uh, evolutionarily, that is the first step. Because if you know that, you can begin to ask, well, what would we target? Well, what I would target would be, what is it in their cells that enable the challenge from the environment to cause that rapid mutation, what we call hypermutation? If we could stop that, if we can work out the biochemical pathway by which that occurs and put in a blocker at some stage in that pathway that makes it difficult for bacteria to sense that kind of challenge or to respond to it rather, then I think we might be onto a winner. Again, that's a suggestion for the more technologically minded members of your audience. You know, is there a new industry there? Is there a way in which that could be fast tracked to be a solution? I'm sure, uh, of course, while we're speaking, you can bet that Roche, Novartis, Blackfish with Klein and so on, they must all be thinking about this and yeah. uh, and without possibly working on it. But you know, it's also true that, and I've seen this because I've interacted with the pharmaceutical industry over many years, given evidence for them at the FDA too. Um, it's also true to say that small startups sometimes make headway where a big organization like a Pfizer or Novartis can't do so. They've got the, um, what is it? It's the inbuilt um, the tendency to go in a particular direction with the company. Um, a, a new startup can sometimes have the freedom to, as it were, choose a particular route to go. Um, but whether that's good advice to somebody or not, I can't say. Mm. Um, it, takes, it would take somebody with very good contacts in the world of hypermutation in bacteria, and in particular, the kind of hypermutation that leads to their developing resistance to take this really further forward. Why do you think that bacteria can hypermutate and evolve so much faster than a person or a dog, let's say, and can we harness that that hypermutation for ourselves? That's a very good question. Um, First of all, we do do it in our immune systems. Uh, actually, the way our immune system responds extremely rapidly to a foreign invader is that it hypermutates just a part of the genome. Now, just to be technical for a moment, this is the part of the genome that codes for what is called an immunoglobulin. Immuno is obviously part of the immune system. Globulin means a globular protein. And so, um, what's happening there is that our immune system has got exactly that hypermutation mechanism. Now, how effective is it? It's fantastically effective because the bit that hypermutates, the very small part of the immunoglobulin gene, the bit that mutates, mutates not just 10 times more rapidly or 100 times more rapidly, hundreds of thousands of times more rapidly. And that's why the mechanism is so effective. It's why you can involve um, a new strategy to deal with a new invader so remarkably quickly, within days. Which, of course, coming back to the bacteria, is exactly what they manage to do. They can evolve uh, new strategies within days. So, um, to answer the question, how can our bodies do it? They do it already. However, 
but don't do it in the germ line. Mm. Now that's rather fortunate <laughs> because as the DNA in our bodies and what we pass on to subsequent generations is extraordinarily complex. It's a system, it's a whole system, it's not just a sequence. Um, now, interfering with that, and we're debating that, of course, now with CRISPR technology and similar technologies, is the ability at last to, as it were, play God and to um, influence and alter our own genomes. Um, the difficulty here is that most effects that you could produce by mutating the genome would be damaging. Okay. Very few mutations are really beneficial. Now, how does the immune system or the bacteria cope with that? They do it with a very wasteful strategy. Any cell that produces a dud, that produces either a bacterial cell um, trying to produce by harping mutation uh, a new strategy against an antibiotic, or our immune system cells trying to produce a new way of dealing with an invader, um, what they do is tell all the cells that can't make it, that don't succeed in producing that key that opens that lock, die. Mm, okay. And there's a mechanism for that that's well known. It's, the, um, it's actually an instruction from the organism as a whole to those cells to conduct a form of suicide, which in biological language you call apoptosis. That's just a long word for a very simple phenomenon, which is die. So what's happening is very wasteful in one sense, but of course it's saving the individual, the organism, at the expense of all those cells that are told to die that don't succeed. Only the ones that succeed get to reproduce in the immune system. Now, you wouldn't want to do that to your germ cells. And so I guess... Dilemma here, uh, because you'd have to tell all the germ cells that are no good to die. Mm. Now, that might mean telling 99.99999% of them to die. Mm. And you're not going to have many eggs left if you do that. So I think the answer is that hypermutation would be a very bad strategy for our germ lines. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and then last question I wanted to ask you because you know, I, I sense we could talk for years on this stuff. It's so fascinating. In the beginning, you talked about the that you were the first to model how the human heart works with the pa or how a pacemaker might work with the human heart. That's right. Yeah. Can can we model? You think? I mean, it's crazy, but what about the entire human body and all its systems? Could you model that mathematically, or is that just absurd to think about? Not absurd, and indeed there's a project that attempts to do that. It's called the Physiome Project, and I helped to launch it about mm. 20 years ago at a congress in St. Petersburg in Russia in 1997. No, it, it is audacious enough to say, can we model the whole human body? There are now people who model pancreatic cells, liver cells, um, smooth muscle cells in arteries, um, palatal muscle cells, skin cells, and so on. And there are others who love to try and put it all together. So, yes, there is a project to do that. Um, but let me be fairly blunt about its prospects. I think they're very interesting prospects indeed in working out how 
the body works as a whole. I think we can learn a lot from that kind of mathematical modeling. I think it would be very interesting also from the point of view of drug discovery, because in all of those areas, you can then do clinical trials in silica. You can, as it were, do clinical trials of particular chemicals in models of parts of the body, which will at least save you having to use many animals in animal experiments, or not as many as you would have to do otherwise. You can do thought experiments, as it were. Mm. However, let me now give you a calculation which will tell you that we're not going to see the virtual human walk into this room and pick this telephone up and start talking to you in any near time scale. And one way to look at it is this. There are about 25,000 genes in the human genome, give or take a few. Okay. If you ask the question, how many interactions could there be between 25,000 elements, it's 10 to the 70,000. I've done the calculation. Oh my God. You, really? you laugh. You rightly laugh because <laughs> how many particles are in the whole of the known universe? It's 10 to the 80. We're talking about 10 to the 70,000. Wow. You know, evolution could not have explored more than a tiny fraction of that in the billions of years for which it has occurred. And we're not going to do that either. So what I think the Physiome Project is likely to succeed in doing is getting principles and insights and possibly good application like new drug, drug discovery purposes. But it's not going to produce uh, a virtual human who's going to walk into my room in a hundred years' time and take wow. this phone off me and speak to you over the phone. Wow. So when we talk about modeling the whole human body, yes, we're trying to do it, but we're also realistic about the fact that this is not to create a kind of Frankenstein monster. That's amazing. So, yeah, last question, I promise you for now. Um, and I, if you don't want to answer, that's fine. But okay, how has this affected your... Um, your spiritual spiritual beliefs, knowing all that you know and seeing all you've seen, do you yes. believe in a God? Yes. Do you not? What you know? How has it changed for you? Okay, that's a very good question because um, I I'm not actually particularly religious, so I don't um, and, and can't claim to be speaking here from a particular spiritual tradition. But I do respect uh, those that do. Um, not because I necessarily think they're right in their beliefs, but because I think they're right to hold on to the spirituality of man. Um, what I've learned from my, well, it's now about 60 years of research in relation to the physiology of the body, is that it is a fantastically and extraordinarily complex um, thing. I, well, here I come to a very interesting point. You know, I even doubt some of my colleagues when they say, well, you know, once we understand the brain, we'll understand what you're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, well, un no doubt, once we understand much more about the brain, we'll understand much more about what we're doing. I don't doubt that. But what I also think is that a huge amount of what accounts for our spirituality is our interactions, our social interactions with other people. And if we believe in a god of any kind or have particular 
religious practices, and incidentally there are major religions that don't have a creator God in the sense um, Christianity or Judaism uh, do, or Islam, um, religions like Buddhism and Taoism in the Far East are like that. Um, talking about though the admiration I have for those who hang on to a concept of spirituality which arises either from their belief or their practice, and sometimes I suspect it's a mixture of the two. I think all of that should, people who believe in all that, should at least take comfort that the biologists don't think it's all a matter of blind chance. Hmm. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we can prove there's a God out there. I don't know what that would mean, even if I could do it. It doesn't mean that I personally have any such belief. Actually, it starts from a non-religious position. But I've been brought by my science to respect a very spiritual view of humanity. And I'm not the first person to do this. There's a very interesting developmental biologist, Conrad Waddington, way back in the 1950s, wrote a lovely book called The Strategy of the Genes. And he criticized the then standard theory of evolution, it's the same one as today, that is neo-Darwinism. And he said, neo-Darwinism been very bad for man's spiritual health. Hmm. Now, he didn't say that as a believer. He said it as somebody who was concerned about the effects of very simplistic biological explanations of, uh, of organisms generally, and of man in particular, and for the effect that would have on all aspects of spirituality, including, quite apart from anything else, our political and economic ideas, as well as our religious ideas. So, to sum up what I'm saying, I don't come from a religious position myself, but I do have respect for spirituality that religious people insist on, and personally, I also insist on it. I just don't frame it in a particular religious context. Well, very good. Dennis, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been an awesome interview, and I'm um, reading your Dance to the Eternal Life book, yeah. Very interesting discussion indeed. Okay. Bye-bye for now then. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. 